Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 139 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the greatest Australian actors of all time, an Oscar winner for 1996's Shine, an Emmy winner for 2004's The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, and a Tony winner for 2009's Exit the King, the great Jeffrey Rush. Rush, who is now 65, has had a most unusual career. He worked in the Australian theater as a character actor almost entirely under the radar until he was well into his 40s, at which point he was offered the starring role in the tiny Aussie indie Shine, Scott Hicks' biopic of the schizophrenic pianist David Helfgott. Largely because of his performance, the film became an international sensation, and he took home not only an Oscar, but also Golden Globe, SAG, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, New York Film Critics Circle, and L.A. Film Critics Association Awards, cementing his reputation as an actor of the First Order. Over the ensuing years, he garnered three more Oscar nominations for his supporting performance in the Best Picture Oscar winner for 1998, Shakespeare in Love, for his leading performance in 2000's Quills, and for his supporting performance in the Best Picture Oscar winner for 2010, The King's Speech. He has also played the key supporting part of Barbosa in the Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise, which has encompassed four of the biggest blockbusters of all time, with a fifth on the way. His latest project, Genius, is in some ways unlike any he has undertaken before. It's a ten-part limited series, the first scripted show ever put on the air by National Geographic, in which he plays the older of two versions of Albert Einstein. And though its first episode, which was directed by Ron Howard, doesn't debut until Tuesday, April 25th, Critics and pundits, including yours truly, already have gotten an early look at it and several other episodes, and I can tell you that Rush is at the top of his game. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel, Rush and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, what it was like being thrust with the success of Shine into fame and fortune after years of having neither. What factored into his decision to do a TV movie in The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, at a time when actors who had made their name in movies rarely agreed to do anything related to television. What the series of faithful events were that led to him reading the script that would become the King's Speech and learning a great deal about the little-known speech therapist he agreed to play in it. What most appealed to him about playing Ingenious, an iconic man everyone knows of but few know much about, for a network that had never made anything like it before, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Jeffrey, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. To begin with, we always begin by asking, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in a town up on the Darling Downs, which is like 80 miles west of Brisbane, the capital of Queensland in Australia. And my mum was a shop assistant in a kind of like department store. And my dad was an accountant in the Air Force. Talk about the the cultural landscape in Australia when you were growing up, because from what I've been able to gather, wasn't yet much of a film industry. TV came there a bit later. So for somebody who clearly had artistic inclinations, I think from an early age, where... Where did that come from, and what would you, what could you do with it? Yeah, it felt like a a, a bleak wasteland. <laughs> but you know, when I look back, literally the film industry yeah. had been dead since the 1930s. We yeah. had a really fertile, active film industry from the late 1890s onwards, because the Lumiere brothers came out uh, with their kinematograph. Okay. Um, and filmed the Melbourne Cup, which is like our big Southern Hemisphere Kentucky Derby kind yeah. of. It's the big horse yeah. race, <laughs> and that ha- that really fired people's imaginations. And we lay claim to having created the first probably feature length mm-hmm. dramatic film in 1905, 196, The story of Ned Kelly. Mm-hmm. He was a bush ranger outlaw, Jesse James kind of equivalent, yeah. you know. And by the 30s, we were flourishing, you know, and then, sorry to say, American distribution kind of overtook the Mm -hmm. world and our industry became completely moribund. Very rare, occasionally an English film production might do some Australiana kind of theme. Mm -hmm. And it really only kick-started again in the mid-70s, kind of in the wake of the first wave of people that mostly came out of the newly established film and TV school. Yeah. You know, that was the kind of the Peter Weir's, Gillian Armstrong's, Phil Noyce yeah. kind of era. But for me growing up in Toowoomba, you know, I'm old enough now to remember the dying days of travelling vaudeville tent shows. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me sound right? like I'm 120. Oh, well, they lasted there longer, <laughs> though. They were gone. They just survived, like, within a year or two, they were gone. They, you know, they had this magnificent, like, maybe 800, 1,000-seat tent mm-hmm. with a canvas proscenium arch stage down one end, and by night they would do 
variety acts and magicians and blue comedians, mm. very risque adult <laughs> right. humour. And then by day they'd do a, a, like an English style but a very Australian pantomime yeah. for kids. Mm-hmm. I was enthralled by that. And then I remember at around about the age of seven or eight before we made the move to Brisbane, which mm-hmm. is a, was a much bigger city, mm-hmm. I would see local amateur musical theatre productions like Oklahoma. So I felt there was a surfeit of like an extremely vibrant theatrical culture going on in my life. But technically, if you look back, there was one major national musical theatre commercial outfit right. that toured, you know, and you were Hallow just kept Dolly saying, um, <laughs> my understanding is that you really, I guess, in a way, went all in as as far as doing this stuff yourself, senior year of high school. What happened there? A few things, right? That that kind of solidified this trajectory. Yes, academically, I was I did okay in high school. And at the age of 10, I was besotted with the American space program, the Mercury mm-hmm. program, then Gemini, then the Apollo. Mm-hmm. That was as significant to me through my high school years as the surf music coming in from California <laughs> or the Mersey sound coming in from Britain. We right. were kind of sandwiched between these two right. great, you know, youth quake moments in, in, in pop culture. Mm-hmm. So I went to the vocation guidance officer and said, you know, I, I, I really want to be an astronomer. I used to give lectures in year seven. I don't know wow. what, what about the solar system and I'd have maps and all this sort of stuff. Wow. How and why books, you know, they were kind right. of cosmology for dummies. Right, that right, was right. the equivalent of that, right. you know. And he said, you'll need chemistry and physics and advanced mathematics. And I went, great. And I did that. <laughs> and by years 11 and 12, I was... Hopeless. <laughs> once, once the slide rule had to come out, and once it. calculus entered into the equation, it just my brain did not <laughs> process. I very much understand that. that. Yes, but at the same time, fortunately, I'd also been doing a lot of school plays. You know, every year we would put on something, and uh, for whatever reason, in years eleven and twelve, the 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 women who had kind of nurtured us into the school drama club. They either got married or got transferred or whatever, and we just decided as students that we would run it ourselves. So I was the director of the company in year 12, doing groundbreaking work like arsenic and old lace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this, so this, when you say year 12, just are we saying basically the year before you would go off to university? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That was my senior year of high school. Gotcha. And then I went to university and changed to a Bachelor of Arts degree and studied literature and drama. And, and as you headed off to university, what did you imagine you would actually be doing with the I future? I didn't know. I was no. time-filling. Yeah. And I thought, you know, uh, the the generic broad education. And it was still, still in an era where the university felt like a kind of separated enclave from the rest of the world. You could actually just go and indulge in study. And it felt great after the pressures of high school because you, you'd, you'd turn up to lectures. But I was quite a keen student because I, I was hungry for, you know, I was doing psychology and anthropology and a lot of arts, literary subjects. Was there also a bit of a radical streak there? Uh, (laughs) This was 69 to 71. So, yeah, it was right in the center of that great countercultural kind of swing. And that even extended into the 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 theater. And the the campus was like the hub within Brisbane, you know. 
So as even as you continued to be involved with theatrical stuff, that that impacted that as well, right? You were not just doing, you know, Oklahoma no. at the university. Oh, no, no, we were doing, you know, radical kind of uh, political reviews and there'd be a mixture of the artsy people on campus would be there with the Trotskyites right. and they'd be with, you know what I mean? It was, uh, it was quite a, a heady mix. So what was it that happened while you, I think, were still in university that led to your first professional opportunities here for several years well i was in a number of i suppose you know there were radical classical reinterpretations of things like ibsen's Pierre gint and then in the reviews you know there'd be a lot of, there'd always be nudity for laughs you know like <laughs> that and during that time the director of the newly formed queensland theater company which was a major state regional repertory company mm-hmm. set up he came to see that in that show where I was running around naked and whatever. And I, I, I always like to say I had, that he, he thought there was a big future in front of me. <laughs> I don't know. But I literally did my last exam right. for my Bachelor of Arts right. on a Friday. And on the Monday morning, I was on a three-year contract to go into the theatre. So I didn't have any anxiety about what am I going to do with this degree. I just thought, well, this is practical. And what did the people around you, I guess your parents, other people, what did they make of this? You're now actually doing it. Well, my mum was always, has always been outrageously supportive and just said, if that makes you happy, great. And she comes and sees everything I do. Mm -hmm. She's about to turn 90 this year Ah, and she's in good shape. That's great. Terrific. Yeah. And your dad, was he still around in the picture at that point? No, no. no, They divorced when I was quite young. I gotcha. Mm. So... You did that for the three years. How do you then wind up in England and France, and what was the value of that going forward? There was a, there was a kind of interstate rivalry. I don't know. Like, did New York and Chicago have a kind of unspoken rivalry Or Boston relation? and New York. Yeah, Boston yeah, and New yeah, York, yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. There was kind of that between anything to do with Queensland and, <laughs> and the southern states, as we disparagingly right. call right. Sydney and Melbourne. <laughs> So I did three years at that company and the inevitable path would have been to go to our National Institute, NIDA, which, you know, produces great actors. Kate Blanchett studied Mm -hmm. there much later, of course. But because I'd done three years, eight plays a year in this sort of repertory-style company, I, I felt trained enough to kind of make a sideways step and I'd done a workshop with this guy who'd studied under this great... French teacher Jacques Lecoq, which is a kind of movement and mimetic-based course. And I went to a workshop that he ran in Brisbane once, and he said, you've got a really good feel for this. I'd, I'd strongly recommend you go there because it is a genuinely, it will tap into your distinctive creativity. He doesn't really turn out a kind of prescribed product, you know, I mean, at different times, you know, people like Julie Taymor had studied at that school and Manushkin, who's a great French director, and actors like Toby Jones and Simon McBurney from Complicité mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. people like that. So I went there for two years and it just swung my whole life around. It was like the most fantastic experience. What was the, what changed? I, I suppose I was in my mid-twenties then and I had a... A reasonable amount of maturity and experience <laughs> under my belt. 
Well, the Queensland Theatre Company where I'd worked, they financially got me out of a bit of a hole because I lived in a state of penury while I was there. And they offered me $1,000, which was a lot of money Mm -hmm, in 1976, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to help with my second year fees. Wow. With the proviso that by 1980, which was... So far into the future, in my, it was almost George Orwell right. territory, you know. I thought, take the money. They said, as long as by, in the next, by 1980, come back and work on salary for six months right. and take some classes from what you've learned being at this school mm-hmm. in Paris and everything. And the following year, they did a production of King Lear with this, well, he's famous, just recently, sadly passed, Warren Mitchell, who was, you know, this groundbreaking sitcom in Britain in the 60s called Till Death Us Do Part, which became all in the family oh, right, in America right, right, with right. Carol O'Connor. O'Connor, yeah. yeah, yeah. Very brazen, sharply written, you know, dangerously political and, you know, and, and the the bigot at yeah. the heart of it was a great <laughs> right. figure of fun. Right. So he wanted to do King Lear and I went back and played the fool to him and I just had the most fantastic time and that play then took me to Sydney and it played well and I thought I was going to come back and work with some of my colleagues in Europe and set up our own small theatre ensemble or whatever but you know 13 years later I'm still working in Australia and and what had happened in Australia while you had been in England and France, I guess, was that they had now started slowly to have a film industry, right? They did, they did, yeah. And so, when you came back, was that what kept you there in a way that you were you already getting into? I, films I was, a bit? I was, I went straight back to the theatre. Yeah. I, you know, I was so thrilled because I'd seen, you know, Peter Weir's early films, to Picnic at Hanging Rock and The Last Wave, mm-hmm. which are, you know, they're Australian masterpieces, I think. And maybe the Fred Skepsi uh, but I, stuff. And Fred Skepsi as well, you know. But I never identified or saw myself as a film actor. And, you know, it could have been a lot of what we were doing at that stage was exploring the kind of debate between, you know, with something like the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith that was the debate between our, our First Nation indigenous population and the white settlement mm-hmm. from 200 years before. There was a lot of pioneering of of the white settlement type films and I thought, I'm not the kind of guy to have my shirt off riding bareback (laughs) on a horse, you know. And I I was doing so well in the theatre, I was kind of, you know, working in regular long-term contracts, three-year contracts, two-year contracts in ensembles and stuff. Well, I want to ask you, like, if you can contextualise for somebody who wasn't there, doesn't know how the Australian theater world worked at that point, if there was a parallel in the United States, would you have been a guy who was constantly working on Broadway or was it more regional stuff? Or what? Well, not so much Broadway, more like you'd be working maybe like at the Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. This would be high-end, right. you know, prestigious, state-funded, federally-funded theater companies. But the the commercial arena has always been very strong in, in Australia for musical theater. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, you know, some major revivals, like they, a colleague of mine is uh, currently in My Fair Lady, mm-hmm. which will end up on Broadway because right. Julie Andrews has directed it. Oh, wow. And the, the sort of wellspring of musical theatre talent is massive in mm-hmm. that country. So 
sometimes they'll do something like hairspray, but it won't necessarily be the blueprint of the Broadway show. Right. It'll be reinvented with design or whatever. And sometimes it'll be Jersey Boys and it will be right down to the micro right. piece of choreography <laughs> that, that that is you know carefully reproduced from the brilliance of the original and so forth. But the reason I ask is that when in 1996 Shine came along and sort of put you on the international map, the way it was often, I think, reported was that Here's this guy who's been a, a jobbing actor 25 years. The impression was that, you know, you had been kind of scraping out a living doing this. But in <laughs> fact, you've been a pretty successful actor in Australia, right? Well, successful in the sense that it was always personally rewarding for me because I got to know a number of key long-term directors that I've had relationships with over yeah. now 20, 25, 30 years. So I was always constantly in work. It was never... I know when my daughter was born in 93, I thought, wow, education fees, where are they <laughs> going to come from? You know, And there was just that fortuitous timing. Not that the fee for Shine was... Well, compared to a theatre wage, I sort of went, wow, this is... I'm, in, I'm Scrooge McDuck now. I'm, I'm in the money bin, you know. Well, let, let's step back, though, for a second, because when... So were you content with your career as a working at a quite high level regularly in Australia actor? Yeah. Look, I was able to play a broad repertoire and it was very satisfying because I was I kind of had a reputation and was I was ticking off within the Shakespearean canon. All of the, I, I rarely do the big verse heroic roles like a Hamlet. Never done that. Never done the Scottish play. But I, I did do Lear right. a year or two ago. Right. I was in that outer concentric circle of all the idiots and ratbags and fools <laughs> and drunks that Shakespeare wrote. Right. And they're, they are great roles. Oh, yeah. You know, Sir Andrew Agu Cheek in Twelfth Night and Thersites in Troilus and Cressida or Tolicus in A Winter's Tale. So I was, I was getting to play them all over the country and having a really kind of fun time. So what were the panic attacks about that I heard? when You're around when you turned 40, before Shine, you're having a kid. What, but you were, you, were, you were having literally panic attacks, Probably right? turning 40. Turning 40, really? <laughs> I don't know. I think I might have overstretched. Do you know what I mean? We were doing a production. My wife was in it. We were doing a production of... The importance of being earnest, and that's probably as close as I got to what was near what, what you might call a commercial production. Mm -hmm. It had the woman playing Lady Bracknell was very famous actress and famous on television, and the the guy uh, who who played both Lane and Merriman, the the two butlers, mm -hmm. was a fantastic comic actor. He'd been working in New York for decades, and so they were very big star names. Mind you, Jack Worthing is actually the biggest role in the show, but that's all right. The print on the poster right. was kind of blotting itself out. It was so tiny. <laughs> oh, you're saying not, of your, of your credit. Yeah. 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 I'm not bitter. I'm no. not bitter. <laughs> yeah, and we went on a national tour, so we were working hard, you know, and it's eight, eight times a week and everything. And uh, just one night, you know, on stage, I had this kind of wave where I went, it's like a, a wave of terror where you, you go, is this stage fright? I don't think so. I feel comfortable and everything. It just sort of hit me. 
And then I spoke to a lot of, you know, I went to a behavioral therapist and I went and did transcendental meditation and all this sort of stuff. And I started to meet many other people within the profession and from other professions who go, yeah, yeah, just an anxiety attack, panic wow. attack. Right. You're not dying, you think you are. <laughs> you hyperventilate. And then it went away? It, uh, well, it faded over a period of time. And, you know, it was the behavioral therapist I found most interesting. I didn't think it had anything to do with my parents splitting up when I was five. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't really feel like going down that Freudian path. <laughs> I didn't feel as though that was the core of it. Right. And he said, the fact that you went back on stage the next night is part of the therapy because Just you'll it. learn that you, you'll desensitize. Yeah. You know, it'll be, you'll, you'll go, there's nothing to panic about. And know? so that's long gone way past yeah. yeah so how did you first hear about the story of this this pianist david helfgott and how did the idea of a film again for somebody who had not at that point done many films if no, any i'd done two films in which the size of the role my friend uh, dear long time friend used to say is as big as the third rat on the coach in Cinderella <laughs> <laughs> so you were that's a good way of putting it so here you go you you where did where did this come from well the casting director I, I'd spent a lot of time in Adelaide in a regional company it was kind of the go-to place to get away from the big city where everyone was clambering to get into films and it had a great reputation as like I don't know what the, it would be like Steppenwolf mm -hmm, in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Everyone goes, it's got its own identity. Yeah. It's strong and, you yeah. know, sometimes shows tour from there, but there's a kind of artistry to it. Or the Worcester Group or something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the woman who was the casting director of Shine had seen me a lot in theatre, as had the director, Shine, uh, Scott Hicks. Mm -hmm. So they just offered me the part and I read the script and thought, wow. Somehow, this is the first time I've read a screenplay where I went, this could be my territory. Mm -hmm. Not because I'd played Ratbags and I'd played <laughs> The Fool in Lear, but there was something about, and then I met David and I went, his sense of otherness in the world seemed to match those sort of outer concentric circle characters that I'd been playing. You know, I hardly ever hovered to the right. heroic point at the centre of the story, you know. Uh, and it was an impeccably written screenplay, and I found it very moving and everything. And Were you surprised to be offered this? Well, I, t I went in and did screen tests with Scott, and he, even then he was playing around with, could his hands, be, could we do, you know, puppetry kind of things? And I said, I think if I, you know, if I take this role on, you know, I'd at least learn to mime the piano really well. But, of course, what happened is that fate entered... It took three years. Every every three months, I'd get a phone call saying, mm, "We can't get the finance together. We're postponing for a while." You know, another three months, another three months, and then my daughter was born. So I took time off, and I thought, "I'm waiting for this film because it's worth waiting for." It just and were feels... you doing things to prep? Were there things you could be well, doing? Well, yes. I mean, I spent a lot of time. Scott had given me hours and hours of interviews that he'd done with David mm -hmm. in in researching the the biography of his life and I wrote all of these interviews out as I wanted to see what they looked like in script mm. form and that was a, a, an illumination because all of the kind of curious minefield of wordplay and thoughts that go through David's head that 
comes out in, in his kind of natural babble, enthusiasm for, the, the, for life. It just was so fascinating. So I had time to look at that, and then I had time to, to start working with a piano tutor. And we didn't get the green light till early 1995, so it was close on three years. So I put that to good use, and for the first time I wasn't booked up doing eight plays a year in a held-together repertory kind of right. scene all over the, the country, and I was occasionally then available to do a new David Mamet play with, with a young Kate Blanchett, and, you know, at three weeks' notice, I said, yeah, I can do that. I'm, I'm free. <laughs> I nothing on. So how early on, once you'd, once you'd gone to work on the movie, did you realize that this was something that was really working? And, and then even in your wildest dreams, did you imagine that this could, could take on the life that it did internationally? No, no idea whatsoever. <laughs> no idea. We thought, oh, look, it's... It's a really interesting story. Is there an audience out there, even in Australia, who will be interested in, let's say, a central character with a slightly aberrant personality who marries an older woman and he's a classical pianist? People might go, yeah, you know, it's just not my (laughs) cup of tea or whatever. So Australian films had often beaten the path to Cannes. That was where... Uh, and at that, around that time, it's when, you know, Jane Campion, mm-hmm. who we claim is Australasian, yeah, right, we right, embrace right. that one palm door at Cannes with the piano. Yeah, like two years earlier or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But for some reason, they they raced the print, it was literally wet from the lab, and it, they got it into Sundance, which wasn't a conventional path. And I was doing a TV series at that time over a period of six months. And do you remember those old phone fax machines where you'd feed in kind of shellacked, what looked like shellac public toilet newsprint? <laughs> do you know what I mean? I think I know what you mean. Uh, Tell so, Because my agent said, you've got to get a fax. Yeah. You know, it's, we can send you messages and you, know, you can sign things and then send them back. <laughs> And I kept getting these messages from Scott Hicks, and he said uh, the film has just opened at Sundance, and middle-aged men are staggering from the theatre, sobbing. Wow! And I went, "What do you What do you mean?" He said, <laughs> "It's just you could feel it in the house. I got the rhythm right. He is in the yeah, story. He yeah. said I couldn't believe the emotional tidal wave that was going through the audience and." Then there was a, some sort of bidding war that involved Harvey Weinstein <laughs> and, and I think Park City was snowed in right, that year right. or whatever and they put it under wraps because they wanted to release it. Fine Line got a hold of the film with a passion because that's where, you know, these subsidiary mini-majors, as they called them, mm-hmm. were starting to blossom yeah. and they were looking for... You know, an alternative to Off Independence yeah, Day yeah. or whatever. Yeah, right, right, right. Counter programming, yeah. Mm. And you, so that began this year, I guess, maybe even just over a year of constant back and forth to I America did. and your profile blew up and all of that, right? They said, yeah, can you come over and do some publicity? And I said, yeah, that would be, that'd be fun. <laughs> I've got nothing to lose, right, you know. Right. And we came over and went to the Mill Valley Film Festival, which was gorgeous, and then down to the New Orleans Film Festival and... Chicago, and then we did a press junket in New York, and and then I went home, you know. And then two weeks later, they'd say <laughs> we can get bigger and better right. 
outlets now. People are really liking the film, and it was in, I think, the Angelica Center in Lincoln. You know what I mean? Yeah, Lincoln that was Plaza. Or whatever, yeah. And meanwhile, people are starting to actually recognize you. There was a moment on that first visit where I was at some fabulous Italian restaurant down on, like, 12th Street or something. I was outside having a cigarette, and this guy walked past and said, hey, loved your movie. And I went, wow. <laughs> some studenty looking guy right. and I thought I'm kind of a Sydney theatre actor and I'm standing on the streets of New York and this guy <laughs> says that to me and then two weeks later I came back again and a, a, another studenty guy came up and said hey you're Jeffrey Rush aren't you, you know, I mean, loved, loved you in the film Shine you know great <laughs> another two weeks I go back home and they said come back we can get you on some big talk shows and stuff like that and I came back and there was a guy who was a cleaner at the airport and he looked across <laughs> and he went, hey, piano man. And I thought, this is insane. Right. You know, it was sort of like a really interesting human scale right. gradation of how the film was. I wish you'd kept a moving. diary of that year. Maybe you did. I Not know. specifically yeah. in my head, yeah. maybe, you know. So let's just cap that topic by asking, you go into the Oscar night having been nominated itself must have been a surreal or not surreal, but a, a big deal. Did you go in thinking that you were going to leave with the, with the Oscar that night? No, I, again, I just went, well, I don't know what the statistics are, but I'm one of five nominees. Right, right. You never know from the Academy. They're a pretty august body. They yeah. keep a nice tight controller. Yeah. Well, but apart from this year, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I thought, I don't know. I had no idea. And I just thought, I'm in the most amazing company. There's Ray Fiennes, there's Tom Cruise, there's right. Woody Harrelson, you know what I mean, in my category. Yeah, yeah. And Billy Bob, you know. So you, you kind of go, that's, that's, this is a sweet spot to be, you know. But also because of the film had opened in Australia in 1996, I think it was around April, mm. and did the festival, the Brisbane Film Festival, Melbourne Film Festival, Sydney Film Festival. So, you know, it, it was a year later and I'd sort of every day, every waking hour would seem to be a connection with going out and flogging the product <laughs> of Shine. Well, it was near the beginning of this era of like the modern Oscar campaign and whatever. Everybody now, it's, you've seen, it's gotten even crazier, right? Yeah. So, but I mean, it's, I, I guess it, the good news is that without the Oscars, who knows if they'd even make these kinds of movies, you know, it seems like the rest of the year yeah. is pretty. Well, yeah, possibly. Yeah, but you are part of that all the time. And from that, from September the year before, I was used to just, you know, talking about that film. You know, some awards came out, you know, print awards, and you'd go to that luncheon, and they and they weren't even televised in those days, right, you know? right, right. And then the Globes, and then the SAGs, and so you kind of. And it was, a, a, it was genuinely a very interesting party atmosphere because that's where I first met Emily Watson. Right. You know, she was there with Breaking the Waves. Right, right, there. right. And I used to hang out with Billy Bob and in, do joint interviews because right. they thought, yeah, well, two of you might be more interesting than, than the two one new of you. kids on the block. The kind yeah, of, yeah, 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 yeah. The guy from Queensland and the guy from Arkansas. That was, <laughs> you know, that was the, the thing. The couple, right? So by the time you get there on the the night of that ceremony, it's you kind of know your way around 
the protocol. Right. Or, you know, it's not like it just suddenly happens right, right, uh, right. In, in front of you. So, Did the win itself change anything? I could tell by the things that my agent, who I would, was with already since June, the, the year before, yeah. he'd seen a screening of the film when it was under wraps and everything and literally came to Australia to visit a client who was working on a film down there. But uh, came to meet me and, you know, saying I want to represent you. And I thought, wow, you've flown across the Pacific <laughs> Ocean to do this. this right. is, no one else has done that. You right, know? So right. It was, and it's still going strong. Nice. But, you know, one of the first films I was offered after that was Liberace. <laughs> they just wanted another yeah, they, piano. They another piano <laughs> genre. That was going to be my thing. And I thought, no. Uh, <laughs> Better to avoid that. So I, I went and did this, you know, very smart, I thought smart screenplay adaptation of Victor Hugo's novel Les Miserables, mm -hmm. directed by Billy August. And Raphael Iglesias had done a really smart kind of, because it's a sprawling book and it's, you know, to get a cinema narrative out of it is yeah. complicated. It kind of came and went, unfortunately. But for me, it was, I thought, this, I've got nothing to lose because if this doesn't work out and... Then a couple of, you know, good projects came along, Shakespeare in Love and Elizabeth, and they were really, I loved that period of history and it, it felt like I was still kind of mentally in my kind of inspiring theatrical space. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Kind of playing the guy who ran the Rose Theatre was like a Shakespearean character in Tom Stoppard. I had written impeccable. Yeah. Beautiful dialogue for it and stuff like that. You bring up the Elizabethan, your, your Elizabethan era, because you had not just Shakespeare in Love, but also Elizabeth in the same year. Mm. One sort of comedy, one is sort of a drama. Just coincidental that you did those both around the same time? or Totally coincidental. Yeah. They kind of happened. Elizabeth came up as a script, and I was filming in Prague at the time, and Shaker Kapoor came over, because I'd sort of said... I don't know if I really want to play this particular part. I was, wasn't being picky or anything. I just thought, gee, a spy master, it's not normally my territory. I was, you know, hopefully looking for something with a comic slant to it or yeah. that sense of otherness or right. whatever. You right, know. But he came over and it was a really illuminating pitch about how he, as a subcontinental raised in England, Indian, you know, how he saw the the film working. And was that your first time with Kate? And it was, yeah, and it was so unlike what I imagine a, a British director would have done. Right, right. You know, and I always said this is, and then when Kate was cast in it and I'd worked with her and that just seemed so strangely coincidental because we'd worked in the theatre oh, yeah, a okay. couple of times, yeah. you know. You know, and I said to Shaker, well, this is, you know, this is when when I saw the final cut of the film, I went, "This is the Revenge of the Colonies." You know? <laughs> and then with with Shakespeare in Love, this is, I guess, the first of two best picture collaborations with Colin Firth. So, what was the? Uh, it was that's right. Yeah. So, and what something like fourteen years apart? That was. Did you guys? Uh, yeah, something like that. Well, so what was? Did you? I have to ask because again, here's one that did not. I think start with a massive profile and then ends up yeah. winning the Oscar. No, I mean, what I was, was your uh, my agent in Sydney said, "Come in, I've got a really interesting script, and and Tom Stoppard's done the most recent 
draft of it. And I went, oh, great, that sounds very interesting. And I'm sitting there reading. I got to, like, page five. The, the character enters right at the beginning. And I just looked up and I said, I have to be in this. <laughs> it just felt like so you saw it. a gold mine right. in my hands. You know what I mean? I, it just the dialogue was laugh out loud funny. It was smart. But even in making it, everyone went, well, you know, it's got great cast and Judy Dench is playing Queen Elizabeth I and Joe Fiennes and, you know, all these great, Gwyneth Paltrow, and it was just an amazing company. Yeah. But we all, uh, and all the boys that that played the troupe at the Rose Theatre, we were in there a lot. <laughs> and we said, well, you know, do you think it's going to keep the title Shakespeare in Love? I can't imagine Harvey <laughs> wanting the word Shakespeare into this. But, you know, ho- hopefully it'll be a nice little smart art house release, you know. Right. And we, we had no big high grand hopes for it. And we, I remember at the time we'd say, well, you know, if he doesn't want Shakespeare in the title, we we kept coming up with alternate titles like Goodwill Humping. <laughs> and uh, right. there was another one where some guy, yeah, what about the full Montague? <laughs> I can't remember. There were well, others. Yeah, those were all the year before, those two it movies. Was, yeah. It was hilarious for us. And, and then it, it became a date movie, you know. And was it really also driven by, in terms of, winning all these awards, which raised the profile and probably made it a, a movie people wanted to see, was that, seems like it may have been driven by fellow actors. I remember SAG was the first one that really signed on in a way. They gave you guys their ensemble award, which is their equivalent of yes. Best Picture. It just seems like actors loved watching a movie about actors done by actors who looked like they were having a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. I, I can never kind of... Post-mortem, though. I right? Yeah, I can never pick... I mean, I was so thrilled Let's for Moonlight because that film uh, just yeah. knocked me sideways yeah. when I saw it. I went, this is this is masterpiece cinema, you know. Like, you were really watching something so amazingly written, performed, confrontational, stimulating, yeah. you know. And you you don't even want to pull apart what were the ingredients. You right. just go... This, you, you just say to other people... Don't miss this film and don't read anything about it before you go. Let, try and have a, a virginal experience right. with it, you know. It seems like one that almost got away would have been Quills, which I know is another big one in your in your list there of, of many. Why did you essentially try to get out of that one? Well, uh, not initially, I had a fantastic meeting with Phil Kaufman and I was the you know biggest fan of The Right Stuff. I think it's just one of the great American yeah. films. And I'd loved the Tom Wolfe book and, you know, uh, and was passionate about my involvement with the Mercury space program from when I was 10. That ties up to why I wanted to play Einstein yes, in yes. a funny kind of yes. way. But I said to him, you know, yeah, look, it's, it's the script. is Doug Wright, it's like dense, beautiful and scurrilous kind of writing. He's a brilliant wit. And he g- gave me the original play as a uh, uh, to see where it had come from and everything. And I said, but, you know, in 1808, the Marquis de Sade was obese and he was, like, huge. And I said, it's, it's not my role, you know. You need you get a great actor like Brando and he'll eat this alive, you know. And Phil said, no, no, no. Uh, Doug's idea for this is that the Marquis de Sade, locked up in this kind of insane asylum, sees himself as the rakish hero of his own 
novels. There's a, there's a certain degree of narcissism in that. <laughs> and he, I said, oh, okay, all right. It was, again, one of those roles that would normally be out of concentric circle in the story. And I always think about that. I go, you know, when I was doing that film, I thought the Abbe is the heroic, tragic figure in the middle of it. And I'm just the guy that whirls around like Neptune or Pluto or something. You know what I mean? Right. But I guess even when you're playing a, a smaller part, you approach it as if you're the main character, right? You still have to do all the same work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't really... I only count the lines to see if the task is going to be, is my memory going to be up to this? Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes right. on film days you go, today, well, today I've got a five-page monologue, right. you know what I mean, you or had, whatever. You had quite a bit of that with, with Genius. Mm. But last last few before Genius is just, after all these art house movies that we're talking about here, you, you end up, of all things, in Pirates of the Caribbean, which clearly stands out as a different sort of movie and you look like, I think we're now coming up on, we've, you've just finished the fifth. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered, is it fun? Is it, is it a different sort of acting that you're called upon to have to do in these or is yeah, you treat it the same? I treat it the same. I mean, there was just something after two, after two Elizabethan films and, right. and, and, and yet again, wearing, you know, a powdered wig right. and quills. I thought I've got to get out of tights <laughs> I, I think this is going to be a dead end career if I don't, if I, I don't get out of tight right. soon. But you know, in a way, Barbosa does wear stockings. You yeah, know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. That's why when Mystery Men came along, I, I really leapt at that because I just went, any film that's got a character called Casanova Frankenstein, <laughs> you just go, you got to jump on it, get get on board, and right. and it did have an extraordinary cast. And I'm pleased to hear online now occasionally. People go into a bit of a fan rave about it's a it's a forgotten masterpiece or it was their favorite film yeah. when they were at high school or yeah. whatever, you know. People that are going to be seeing Genius, there, there may be an assumption that, oh, Jeffrey Rush is going to television. That They need to go back and refresh on the life and death of Peter Sellers, which was you'd going to do television before it was the cool thing to do. Now everybody, it seems like all the best actors want to go and do. Yeah. But at that time, did it feel like, you know, it seems like for a long time there was this attitude that if you've made it in films, it's a backward step to go to TV. That's all gone. But in when you did Life and Death of Peter Sellers in 2004, uh, did you feel like that was a risky no, move? No. Cause, well, I know, look, HBO was at the top of their game and the, the, the creative team, Colin Callender was the head guy and the whole the whole office was filled with bright, sharp-minded people, passionate about pushing the envelope, you know, as it were. But because of its format, I mean, it went in other territories, it went out at, in cinemas, but it, it exclusively went out on HBO in the States yeah, only, I think, yeah. you know. But I always thought of it as, you know, well, it's a sort of, movie that's playing in the cinemas but it's going to be on tv and they would say to me you know we've got next million subscribers and it means if they all watch it you'll have a two billion dollar opening weekend right. as it were you know what i mean like right. it's uh, they 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 knew who and where and what their audience particularly was and that now of course is like oh. it's mushroomed yeah. in terms of 
you know, yeah, even Nat Geo is now yeah. moving into scripted yeah. drama and the History Channel is doing peak the TV, Vikings right? And Everybody's doing scripted stuff. But one last movie to ask you before we, we finally get to Genius here, which is that with, with the King's Speech, again, back with Colin Firth, but this time it's really the two of you, I guess, for the most part, almost all of your scenes. First of all, the, the way you got it, I think, is kind of a, a amazing story, right? It just like comes over the wall. Comes over the fence. <laughs> no, it was, it was in a brown paper bag yeah. on my welcome mat at, at, <laughs> in front of my home in the suburbs of Melbourne, and the woman who had the play script as it was originally was part of a theatre group, fringe theatre group, I think, in the north of London. She had a best friend who lived in my neighbourhood. And she wrote a cover letter and said, sorry to be so audacious, but have a read of this. And I went, oh, okay. And there was an Australian speech therapist was the character and they were interested in the play, you know. They wanted you to join their play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I thought, oh, that's kind of good. An Australian character in a kind of international story. I couldn't think of many other Mm -hmm. immediate examples, apart from Tropic Thunder. (laughs) (laughs) Where I right. think Robert Downey Jr. might have been basing that on a an Australasian identity, <laughs> we'll, shall we we'll say. We'll have to look into that, yes. <laughs> no, I read it, and to be honest, I wasn't that taken by the, pl- by the play. It had huge ambitious ideas in it, but it was almost reaching for a Shakespearean scale, you know, involving... Winston Churchill and the the Archbishop of Canterbury and the royal household and all of that. And I read it and I thought, hmm, this could be... I thought the relationship between the speech therapist and the Duke of York. I sent it to my LA agent and I said, I don't know who would write this. Maybe the author who's done it Mm -hmm. could. I said, that's... I think that's the story, you know what I mean? Not that you lose those other characters, but it just felt as though that was the heart of it. And David Tyler did, you know, he adapted it into a screenplay and then Tom Hooper came on board. And I'd, I'd met Tom at, like, at an HBO do. I was, seemed to be welcomed socially into the HBO family <laughs> and I got invited to a dinner right. in, in L.A. Right. And uh, it happened to be uh, Helen Mirren who was just opening with Jeremy Irons in the long-form version of Queen Elizabeth yeah, yeah, yeah. and Tom had directed some of that or maybe mm-hmm. all of it. Mm-hmm. I just happened to be sitting next to him at dinner and we got on terribly well and then some years later his name came up and he said, I'm really interested in this story because he has an Australian mother. And at this time, even though you're into the script and you're into the character and all that, you there wasn't that much known about this guy that you were going to play Lionel Nothing. Logue. Nothing. I Googled him and found one minor reference on the, on, the, on the history page of the Australian Speech Therapists Association website. <laughs> one glimpse of a reference. And then my uncle, who uh, was a doctor and mm-hmm. had studied medicine, he remembers. He said, I remember we learned about... Lionel Logue in second year when we were dealing with anatomy or the tongue or something like that, and there was a passing reference. But the one that knocked me sideways was at some ceremony or some... was at some awards night, I think. I was introduced in passing as Rupert Murdoch was leaving the room, and 
they told me, or one of his minders told me the story that he'd asked, uh, what, what films are around at the moment? What should I go and see? You know, and they mentioned uh, The King's Speech. What's it about? Oh, it's about this Australian speech therapist. And he went, ah, oh, Lionel Logue. <laughs> because Lionel Logue had treated his father, oh Keith my Murdoch, God. for a childhood stammer, you know. Oh, my God. And I know, it's crazy. That's man. crazy. And what was even crazier was the way that, that you ended up getting the information, like ver- a lot of information about this guy was at that, the last minute. Did you minute. hear that loud noise and when all those names I was dropping on the floor? <laughs> that, that was a, Rupert Murdoch, that's that all right. Racket. He's uh, Aussie, it's, it's all in the family, that's okay. But basically just right before you, you go to work, it all it all poured in, Literally, right? I thought I will have to invent this character yeah. and do what, you know, a speculative history for him. Where did he grow up? What were his likes? What did he look like? We'll have to make this up and and find the credibility that he got to work with the king and everything. And then we were spending, we spent about three or four weeks, Colin and the writer and myself and Tom, in a hotel room and we were just inching and working through the script and road testing. There were scenes that were, were 10 pages long two middle-aged men sitting in a room talking, one of whom stutters and you go, is this, is that, is, that, <laughs> is this what movies are about? Is going to work? Yeah. yeah. And then one day Tom came in and said, we've had this gold mine unearthed that one of Lionel's grandchildren, I think, had got in t- touch with the art department and said, I've got all his diaries, personally written diaries and photographs and stuff. And it was just, such a wealth of information amazing and that and a lot of that then got woven into the the story i mean david seidler had done his homework and he used to tell me the story that he had written very politely to the queen mother to say can i have your blessing to write this play and she said not while i'm alive it's such a painful kind of memory for her well, there was an instance, as was Peter Sellers, where you're playing a, a person who actually lived but was no longer around to consult. Here it comes again with Einstein. And I guess with as far as genius, we, we've established you had an early interest in science. And did you go after this or did they come after you? How did this come about that you ended up, again, not only back on TV, but in actually a format that I don't think was one that – had you ever done a something as long as 10 hours with one character? I had back in 1980 – I did a 12-part series for our national broadcaster, but in those days, no, no one used the words limited right, form. Right, right, or right. In, they just went TV series, <laughs> you know. The, right. They called a spade a spade right, in those days. Right, right, And this was, yeah, kind of, it was, a, it was about three priests working in a kind of social work environment in their community. And I played the young, you know, Catholic priest who had a big interest in Buddhism and all that. And then there was a crusty old Monsignor and then there was a radical young guy that was out there right. trying, trying to bring out the orthodoxies of the church into a kind of community outreach service, you know. It was okay. It did well. <laughs> and then I did another one in the mid-90s, the one I talked about when I was, Shine was playing at the yeah. festival in Sundance. And that was about a, a broadsheet Sunday newspaper, you know, whatever the equivalent of the New York Sunday Times yeah. is, that sort of thing. And I was the editor, and it was a 12-part thing. That that was great for me because that was just after I'd done three Australian films in a row, and I thought, gee, I better find out how... I better get a lot more experience with the camera, and this came up, and I thought six months of that. Yeah. 
and pounding out an episode every two weeks or something. And I thought this is going to be a really good training ground. So I didn't really, uh, and I was so aware that good writing was coming out of, you know, and the first episode that I read written by Noah Pink, I just thought it, this crackles. This first something. episode of Genius. Yeah. yeah. This really crackles. It's not academic and stuffy. It's not, it's whatever Nat Geo is doing to rebrand themselves in their first foray into scripted drama. Yeah. They, they seem to be doing it really well. Yeah. And Ron is an enthusiastic, he, he does an enthusiastic pitch as well that's very articulate and very exciting. You, you get caught up in the vortex of his enthusiasm right. for making something that's imaginative and got good storytelling and is going to inspire audiences to have their imaginations put on high alert, you know. So it was an offer. And then Johnny Flynn, fabulous, mm -hmm. my doppelganger, yeah. you know, uh, he got the he, he got that role a, a week later or something. I think they were trying to find the right actorial DNA to get these two guys to credibly create. And were you guys seeing each other as you did this? Was we, we started, we started uh, speaking to each other on Skype because I was in Melbourne and he was in the UK. And we, I said, you know, look, we know he's a scientist, so we don't. That's going to happen, you know. That's that's what he does. We're going right. to see him do lectures, and we're going to see him do this, and we're going to see him writing on blackboards and everything. So we started talking. I said, you know, I, they sent me this Vimeo package of pr pretty much every bit of newsreel footage of Einstein, older Einstein that existed. And there was one fabulous bit where you just see him getting off a boat, carrying his violin case with the hat looking like some kind of Yiddish bohemian poet, <laughs> you know, and I, I ran that idea past Johnny and he said, yeah, I know, it's like I'm getting that. It's like I'm getting, um, the, he'd then send me a photograph of Bob Dylan in the 1960s <laughs> going, I'm getting this sort of feel mm -hmm. from him as well mm -hmm. because he was such a rebellious, anti-authoritarian young man and even at the age of 16 or 17, he turned in his German passport because he wanted, wanted to be a citizen of the world. And that's, that's radical behavior yeah. for, you know, in the 1890s. So, yeah, we were just bouncing around these kinds of ideas and we looked at, you know, transitional moments. But because the story is by no means told in a strictly linear fashion, it's not cradle to grave. It jumps around, not unlike Einstein's theory of relativity. Right. You move around this man's life and look at it from whatever viewpoint. Certain thematic, dramatic threads will tie it together. Well, and there's pe there are people that hear science or Einstein or things related to that, and, and maybe their, their tendency throughout their life has been their eyes sort of glaze over a little bit. But in this yes. case, you, you guys deal with that <laughs> from the first scene where we see you, where uh, it's like this is not your guy who's, yes. you know, just pictured in the Think Different ads or whatever. You, you're, you're having sex with your secretary, and the, that's how you meet Albert Einstein. I know. Well, that's thanks to Ken Biller, the showrunner, and right. maybe Ron. I know Ron was determined that, that within the first four minutes, people should be on the edge of their seat going, this is working. Yeah. And I remember saying to Ken at some point, I can't think who made this quote, was in some book about filmmaking that I read earlier. It might have even come from Pauline Kael or somebody like that. You know, a good film starts with a fuck or a fight. <laughs> and Ken said last night when we were doing the Q&A, he said, we, we did both. 
Right. That's right. So That's it right. starts with the political assassination of a high, high-standing German member of parliament who's a close friend of Einstein's. It's a, uh, two German Jews, you know. And then the second scene after that is, yes, he is having it off with his secretary, <laughs> secretary Bet- Betty right. Neumann. Right. Which is historically accurate. And yes. his wife Elsa was aware of his extramarital infidelities. Who knew he had such a... Yeah. Right. So in the last last minute here, I just two questions are going to bring this back to you. But with through Einstein here, I want to... So the idea of genius, the title of this show, which is going to apparently continue in, into other geniuses after this. I mean, what is... What does that word even mean to you? Have you encountered in your own yeah. travels a, part a of genius? My, part of my preparation was to do a bit of reading around what people over over history had, had said because it's a, I don't know, probably in the States and Britain. I mean, in Australia, you, you know, people will call, a, a, you know, a lemon meringue pie genius, you know. <laughs> it, it gets applied to food. Right. I can't. I'm not a big sports fanatic, but a friend of mine told me this when he knew that I was playing Einstein. He said, "Oh, there was this Australian rules football commentator saying once, you know, yeah, you can't. People are using the word genius about all the members of the footy teams. You know, <laughs> see the way he kicked that goal. That was right. genius. See the way he <laughs> took that mark. That was genius." He said, "You can't use genius like that." Genius can only be applied to guys like that Norman Einstein. <laughs> I don't know why I find that That's hilarious. so, yeah, so right. hilarious, but right. it is, uh, it's great. No, so I, I landed on one just through Googling going, what is genius? And, you know, you read all this stuff and then you read about the development of IQ testing and, and screeds of stuff about that. But it was Schopenhauer, and I went, great, German philosopher. This will have the voice of authority. <laughs> right, right. But it is, you know, it's it's the thing that could be on a bumper sticker on the back of a car, and it could be on a coffee cup, it could be on a desk calendar, but it's an aphorism that I thought, that's it. Right. And he says, talent hits a target that no one else can hit. You know, and you go, yeah, musician, sportsman, I know what you're talking about. Genius hits a target no one else can see. And <laughs> that's I went, great. Well, yeah. that's Einstein. Right, because right. he was such a lateral thinker, a daydreamer, thinking right. outside the box, as we used to say, yeah. you know, yeah. and coming up with revolutionary new perceptions. It's amazing. And finally, he attained his his fame and, and applause at, a very, at an unusually young age. You, yeah, he was 26. For his profession. Mm. You waited a little longer to become as a, a very famous, widely revered person for what you did in your profession. Having seen what it was like for him studying this character and having known what it was like for you, are you happy it, it was that way or would you have liked to have experienced it the way that he did? Uh, no, I knew in my 20s that, uh, you know, I'd had kind of older mentors that said to me, you know, Maybe in your 40s, that's where you'll mature as a character actor because you'll have more experience under your belt and everything. I knew that I wasn't part of the juvenile territory. Do you know what I mean? I was playing old men when I was 23. <laughs> that, that kind right, of right. stuff in to, uh, uh, up to a point. I've pitched the idea to Nat Geo that if they continue this as a series, I said, why don't you... Even if we only come, come back in incidental cameo roles, keep Sam Colley, this brilliant young 
British actress who plays Maleva Maric, and Johnny and Emily and, and, and Vincent Cartais mm-hmm. and all these amazing people who are in it. So keep them in the ensemble, which yeah. I gather they do American Horror American Story. Horror yeah. Story. Yeah. yeah. So I said, whatever you do for the next one, you know, I'll... I'll You'd come back? I'll come back and just do one scene of it. Not to play Einstein, right, but right. just to be somebody, somebody in there. Cause that's I could, cool. I think it would be interesting. Absolutely. Because they, you know... I said, don't do my life story because that, that, that would be a series called Moron. <laughs> well, this, this idea sounds very sounds genius. So uh, is, they'll, have to, they'll have to do that. But anyway, thanks very much for doing this. Appreciate uh, my it. pleasure. Thanks, man. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.